Well, I'm really excited to present to you today a brand new exclusive series that we've created here at Adventure Rider Radio called Deep Trouble. Deep Trouble is about that underlying framework that really fuels adventure. The framework that is essentially the possibility that something could go wrong. Because if there was no risk, there would be no edge, no thrill, no excitement. And although we don't really want to experience something going wrong for ourselves, the fact that it's possible, even remotely, is what fuels adventure. And for some more than others, a rider could be thrilled by making it through a muddy section, up a rocky hill, through a river, knowing that the result could be getting stuck, breaking the bike or sucking water into the engine. No one wants that, but nothing beats the satisfaction you get from making it through a tough section. For another rider, it's crossing foreign borders, riding far from home, dealing with languages and customs they don't yet understand, and exploring new and far-off places. We riders are a modern type of adventurer, out there, exposed to the elements, rider and machine. Of course, we don't want to drop our bike in the river or get stuck in some remote place in another country or held up at a border, but it's kind of like walking out on a high cliff overlooking a vast valley. The thrill that you get just by approaching it, the sensation that the edge is near, not just the thrill of danger, but it's only when you get close to that edge that you're able to see the vista beyond. It's adventure, like riding a motorcycle. And with Deep Trouble, we'll explore captivating stories of riders who found themselves in deep trouble. We'll dissect these situations, shedding light on the challenges they face, the strategies they use, the the valuable lessons they learned. Most critically, we'll discuss how the situation could have turned out differently if some of the controlled aspects were changed. We'll talk about the possibilities and potential outcomes so that perhaps other riders can learn from their experiences and avoid making mistakes themselves and getting into deep trouble. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We got a good one for you. Sam Manikin, Simon Austin, Simon Pavey, Bill Jocelyn Snow, Charlie Borman, Simon Thomas, Lisa Thomas, Grant Johnson, Brandon Smith, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Best Rest Product is the maker of the Cycle Pump, the best tire inflator for motorcyclists. It'll inflate your flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA, comes with a lifetime warranty. They also distribute Google Tech filters, cyclepump.com. And Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made heavy-duty luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into luggage using their strapping system. And, of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse that adventure riding gives it. Tough, reliable gear, greenchiliadv.com. Well, our first Deep Trouble story today is from Spencer Conway. Spencer travels the globe, now with his partner, Kathy, filming their adventures for television while they sort of loosely attempt for Spencer to be the first person to circumnavigate all continents. When Spencer began this adventure, he was traveling alone, just him and his Yamaha motorcycle. He was circumnavigating Africa 
And it was after that that Kathy joined him and started riding with him and, and doing the videography. This story is from that first trip around Africa when Spencer was traveling alone. Uh, hi, Jim. Yeah, I mean, we're talking about, I think we're talking about deep trouble here. Now, this was actually when I first started on this whole palaver of trying to circumnavigate every continent. So it was in 2010. So this is your original trip. You, you're, you're setting out you to, the, the whole plan is to circumnavigate every continent, but you're alone. You're riding by yourself on your bike. Absolutely. And obviously it was early on in the trip. Yes, I was alone. Um, obviously I had a camera on my helmet. I had a camera, um, handheld camera. And uh, the whole idea was to circumnavigate the whole of Africa on my own. So obviously I started in London. Uh, then I went through obviously Tunisia, Libya, Egypt, Sudan, Ethiopia, Kenya. And uh, Kenya is where my deep trouble started. Mm. Okay. Well, we'll talk about that. So just describe yeah. what you're, you're, you're into at this point in the trip. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So I'm, I'm coming up to the border post now. I know a lot of people really don't like borders. They see them as a, as a big, big hassle. Um, but for me, I find them very, very exciting. I think what people do is they get very frustrated and sort of confrontational, and that's not going to work with anybody, you know. Borders work on a different time. So I tend to just enjoy, um, you know, the the colors, the sound, you know, the vegetables, the fruits, the baskets, and uh, the people running around lifting goats onto buses, etc. I find it very exciting. But uh, on this particular occasion, this is the border between um, uh, Moyale border in the north of Kenya, and it's a 587-kilometer uh, route down to the capital, Nairobi. Uh, now, the northern area is um, fairly dodgy. It's an area where they have Somali bandits because um, Mogadishu, the, the capital, is directly east of um, where my incident happened, which I'll get to in a minute. Mm -hmm. uh, but they train Somali bandits uh, in that area. But on top of that, they have these uh, Kenyan guys called Boran shifters. And these are cattle men, but they're sort of out of society in a way. And they have a lot of guns and they have a lot of disputes between each other. Now, what happened was I, I broke my golden rule, Jim, and uh, I got frustrated. And after about five hours or so of um, waiting and waiting while they were loading things. This, sorry, this is at the border crossing? You, you're talking about you stopped at the border crossing? Yeah. Yes, absolutely. So this is at the border as I'm coming into Kenya with Somalia on my eastern side. Right. So what's your feeling there? Because you just mentioned that it's kind of a shifty area. The boron shifters, I think is what you called them. And then there's the Somali bandits. What was your feeling? Like, you, are you uneasy at that point? Uneasy is the right word, um, Jim. I think fear is the wrong word. It wasn't quite that bad. In fact, um, I did do a report during that actual program when I was at the border because I'd heard about be people being shot on that road. And I did a little thing to camera saying, oh, well, I hope everything goes okay. But then after that, I was a little bit stupid. And I think... You know, sometimes you walk into situations um, when you're not thinking too straight. Obviously, leaving this border on that road, it's standard to have a convoy. So they have an army truck at the front, they have an army truck at the back, and, you know, the overland trucks and uh, the vegetable people, etc., are in the center. And uh, I was supposed to do that with them because it's a very desolate area. And as I said, they've got those groups there. Um, but I went to the army after about five hours of waiting and I said, would I be able to leave? Is it okay if I go on my own? And he just shrugged his shoulders and said, yeah, yeah, go for it. And about 25 minutes later, I got attacked, Jim. 
Well, hang on a sec. So aren't you concerned about, I mean, there's a whole idea that you've got an escort there that everyone else is waiting for the escort. What are you thinking here? (laughs) Sure, sure. Well, you know, I was talking to this about this with Kathy about deep trouble, how there's different levels of it. You know what I mean? I mean, uh, a bad day can be when you're soaking wet or it could be altitude sickness or, you know, you could have a bad tummy or, you know, and then there's other levels of it. And uh, you don't actually expect to get attacked. It's, it's not really in your frame of reference. Mm, so I, li- I like to think positive and go, oh, well, that happened to that person. But you know, the world over, it often depends on the situation and the timing. Um, so you, you you can't predict everything. So I just try to plan as much as possible. But uh, I also make errors. And we've got in trouble a couple of times because of my errors in decision making. But what you're saying is you, you're assessing the risk and you figure, yeah, there's a, a heightened risk, but not enough to really be super concerned. Absolutely. That's exactly it. And uh, I mean, obviously, I don't want to get shot at, but I do find difficult situations quite exciting. The adrenaline of it. When they said go ahead and you rode away, what are you feeling? I was feeling great because, I mean, it's an absolutely stunning area. It's beautiful. There's incredible thorn trees and um, uh, bright red Murram roads, which is the the kind of uh, dirt that they have there. Very, very beautiful. So, in fact, I was actually feeling quite, quite great about it. And the first 20 minutes or so, I was riding along nice and steadily. Um, just actually, to be honest, Jim, I'd, I'd forgotten about the warnings. Oh, so you're you're yeah. you're in total bliss there. Do you have any indication before something happens that there might be something about to happen? Uh, on that particular occasion, I should have taken it on board and I should have stayed with the convoy, but I didn't. And then you just get into the whole riding feeling, don't you? And uh, oh my God, look at that view and look at that road ahead of me. Right. And to be totally honest, I mean Africa is incredibly friendly. So whenever you see anybody. Uh, on the side of the road or anything, they're always waving and shouting and just being absolutely wonderful. So it's a standard thing for me. So when I came around this particular corner and I saw these three um, fellows on, on on top of a hill on a, on a rock, um, I just gave them a massive wave. And uh, instead of waving back, one of them pulled up a machine gun, an AK-47 Kalashnikov, and started shooting at me. Wow. Do you see him, you're seeing the three of them sit up there. You see him stand up. Are you, do you understand immediately what's about to happen? No, not at all. I thought they were going to stand up and wave like 99.9% of people. It's only when a few seconds later and I saw the gun and then you hear the noises and then you're off the bike. It's all so instantaneous. What do you mean hear the noise? Now now walk through that. What exactly happened? So he raises the gun, he fires it. I'm assuming you hearing the shots. That's exactly what happened. You hear the shots and then one of them hit the brake caliper on my motorbike. Another one hit the swing arm and put a hole in it. And uh, another one hit the tire and took the tire off. Yeah, that is incredible. I mean, it doesn't get any closer than that. It doesn't. I mean, if you can't... Sorry to interrupt you, Jim. I no, didn't no. mean that. Um, you, you know, if you if you consider where your foot is sitting on your footrest in relation to your swing arm, yeah. it was literally missed miss me by millimeters. And if I'd been hit in, even in the leg badly by a bullet, uh, that would have been it. I think it would have all been over. So, I mean, I'm thinking glass half full at this stage. What happened? So the, the bike, the tire blew and how did you go down? 
Uh, I, I went down on my right-hand side, and at that time, I didn't know I broke three ribs. I also got a bit of the brake caliper through my arm. So, I mean, I was bleeding and injured, and uh, I picked up the bike. And, um, you know, very luckily, we've got electric starts, obviously, on, on the motorbike. Uh, I just pressed that. The bike started. The tire had shredded. It was, it was unbelievable. Um, so I just rode off with that. And I was expecting to obviously get shot in the back because when I looked around, these guys were running down the hill towards me. And I thought, okay, we'll just ride. And nothing happened. Uh, no, no gunshots. So I got uh, just a couple of kilometers more and then I just rode straight into the bush and uh, ran, uh, lay my bike down and I just ran into the bush oh, uh, until I felt fairly safe. Did you know you weren't hit at that point? Like, did Because you, you got blood and you've got injuries? Oh, I knew I was injured. I knew I was injured, but I just had to get away from them. But you didn't know if you were shot or if it was from falling? No, I didn't know at that stage. I didn't wow. know what it was all about. Um, I, I, realized, I, I realized that I hadn't got a direct bullet um, shot, Jim. I mean, I would have known that immediately, but I knew that there was something wrong. I had a piece of metal or something in my arm. Um, but I, I, I got into this position and I lay down there and I, I literally stayed there all night. Um, to try and get myself out of this situation. Oh, I just wow. didn't so you, want them to find me. So your bike is hit, sort of hidden. You've dumped it right in the bush the best you can. It ran off and you just lay down in one spot and stay there. That must have been terrifying. It was absolutely terrifying. And very, strangely enough, I mean, it's Kenya. Think, people think, um, you know, it's warm there all the time. But if you're lying out in the rain all night, it gets very, very cold and you're shaking, and obviously you've got the adrenaline of the escape. Uh, so you're feeling, you know, you're feeling really, really freaked out and very down. But the thing is to to not totally panic. And I know that sounds ridiculous. I just knew I got to stay still and not make a noise. And if they're not here within a while, they're not coming. And that's what happened. But I was I was literally too scared to actually leave and get up and go back to the road and see if my bike was there. What goes through your mind as you're laying there hour after hour? Okay, well, the first thing was I knew there was something wrong with my chest. So, I, you know, when I was breathing, the, the compressions, uh, it was very, very painful. So I suspected that I had something broken there. The second thing, I mean, you've got all night to think about things. The second thing I thought was, okay, maybe my bike's gone, uh, you know, and I'm done for. The third thing I thought was, that was really stupid. You made a mistake and you deserve this. Well, not deserve it, but you understand. I, I, I made a decision to go alone. I'd been warned that it was dangerous and I, I, I felt bad. It, it was a bad decision by me. Mm. Yeah, you're probably laying there beating yourself up for it. But, but in reality, I mean, like we can do this with anything that goes wrong in life, right? I mean, there's always a chance for you to avoid something and then something goes wrong. I mean, you know, all the times you would make it through. I always, I always talk about the, the kitchen knife that falls off the counter and you grab it before it hits the ground. You think, oh, wow, that was lucky I didn't grab the blade. You know, that's a, such a simple thing compared to what you're, you're going through. But still, it could go either way. And it's, um, you know, but we do tend to blame ourselves. But is it really yeah. your fault? I mean, you're, you're there. You're, you're traveling. Sure, sure. But what, what, what I mean is obviously, I mean, I, I can't justify them shooting at me, but what I think was if I'd been with the convoy, I wouldn't have been attacked. So mm. um, in, in a sense, that's my fault. But, you know, it's the same thing going back to levels again, Jim, isn't it? I mean, adventure motorcycling, as we all know, and your listeners will know, it's not all about getting shot. But um, Kathy and I have always had this attitude of going to some very dangerous places and picking the most difficult roads and, and not avoiding things, trying to 
trying to soak up all of life's experiences. And if you go with that sort of attitude, things can go wrong, can't they? Mm-hmm. What did you change or did you change anything from that experience of the, of the way you do things? Um, I, I, I hope to think I'm a little bit um, more organized and not as much of a risk taker, but Kathy is sitting next to me right now shaking her head, <laughs> saying, saying I haven't changed at all. <laughs> so you didn't learn anything from this, even though you can tell it in a, in a, um, a sort of a, a school-like fashion. In other words, tell us what went wrong, where you went wrong, what the problem was. You still didn't actually take anything away from that. I mean, not in a permanent way. Um, I'll tell you what, eh? it's like the people that help you. That's the thing that comes to the fore. Instead of looking at the negative side, the people who shot you. Because, um, for example, when I, when I uh, eventually got to hospital and got sorted out um, in Nairobi, I phoned Kathy and I said, oh, I'm giving up. And she said, no, you're not. And, uh, you know, it, it kind of pushes you and you sit back and think, yeah, obviously, you know, this is ridiculous. It's only two people on a 200,000 kilometer trip or whatever. That, and uh, they can't ruin your life and ruin your experiences just because of one bad situation. Oh, so it did, it did affect you quite heavily at the time. It was, it was enough to make you, you, right. You rethinking the whole plan and, and uh, which I guess yeah. is, is pretty natural for something that severe. Yes. I think what, what everyone says, you know, this thing about retrospect and also for taking time for things to sink in. I think at first, you know, the, even the first week or the first two weeks, your adrenaline has taken over so much and you're so happy that you're actually okay. And on top of that, I mean, I was very busy um, straight afterwards, you know, doing radio and TV interviews in Kenya about the whole thing, um, that it didn't really sink in. And it was only when I headed off again out of Kenya into Tanzania, and then you've got that headspace again, you're on your bike again, you're away from people again, and it starts circulating in your mind a little bit. And then you realize, oh dear, okay, I, I have been affected by this. Mm. And you do, um, you know, when people say, oh, after that mugging or after this happened to me or after this robbery, you know, I found myself looking behind my back. You yeah. do. That's exactly what you do. You, you know, you hear a loud noise and you jump and things like that. And you think it hasn't affected your psyche, but it has. Uh, I'm not saying fear. I'm saying uh, a memory that wasn't pleasant, mm -hmm. that keeps popping back into your head. But you're saying it sort of added to your, your wisdom, I guess, as a, a rider and rider traveler. Do, do you feel differently because you've had that experience? I mean, when something happens now, do you sort of have a different level of dealing with things now? Even the fact that you're saying that you have to wait a while until things calm down. Did you understand that or live that better now because of that experience? Yeah. No, totally. And I think you have to live through it. But uh, also, you know, Jim, I was very lucky because on the on the second circumnavigation, we had other problems as well. But um, I was with Kathy and Kathy's a very tough character too. So that that was a great help for me. I'm not saying she's like a social crutch to me because she's my partner, but she, it was a it was a great help. And um, yeah, yeah. When you're alone, you need to internalize everything and deal with it. And and of course, when you get to to um, the cities that you, you use other people to help you out, not use them, but you take their advice, you listen to them. And a lot of people want to help you because they realize that you've been through a tough time. And I think things like that, I mean, that's very, very deep trouble, isn't it? Getting, mm -hmm. getting attacked like that. I think it probably takes years to, mm -hmm. to sort of, to go away. 
Um, and, and I mean, you say I, I sound very matter of fact about it, but I, obviously I've spoken to family, I've spoken to friends, I've spoken to you about it in the past. And yeah. that, that all helps as well. It helps you, you know, level the whole thing out. You're riding the same bike today as what you were back then. Do you still have a swing arm with a hole in it? No, this, that's a hilarious story, Jim. Um, it was sent off. The bike was sent off for its MOT, which is, uh, I don't know, MOT is um, Ministry, Ministry of, of Transport. Yeah, it's yeah. basically uh, it's to make sure your bike's legal and roadworthy. And I took it to Lagunas in, in England after the shooting because it went back to England. And uh, the mechanics phoned me up and he said, I was the one that wanted to call you. I, I begged them to let you me call because I, this is the only time I've ever been able to say this. Your bike has failed its roadworthy test because of a bullet hole. <laughs> <laughs> so, so they made you replace the swing arm. Now, did you keep that? Is it on your wall somewhere or on a wall somewhere? No, it, it comes to bike shows with us. So um, when we load up the van with everything, you know, all the posters and the DVDs and the books and the motorbike and everything, we take the swing arm with us oh, as well. very cool. Wow. Yeah, no, absolutely. And uh, yeah, um, we have that bike. That bike is um, actually, I've just stripped it apart and putting it back together. And we have a second bike too, but it's a tenor. It's the same bike. Wow. It's an XT660Z as well. But uh, as I said, the original one, I'm hoping we can get it around the whole world without any more shooting incidents. Yes, absolutely. Well, I'm, I'm so glad you were untouched uh, by the bullets anyway in that one. Thanks so much, Spencer. Yeah, no, absolutely. No, it's a pleasure. was Spencer Conway. His website is spencer-conway.com. We've got that link in the show notes for this episode on our website, adventureriderradio.com. We're going to take a quick break while I tell you about something, but when we come back, we've got another story. This one from Clinton Smout, where he learns about well, trying to fit in with another culture and maybe being a little too ambitious. Stay with us. You may have read a book called University of Gravel Roads. If you haven't, you should. University of Gravel Roads. It's about a guy who rides around the world on $25 a day. He completely falls in love with overlanding by motorcycle, rides everywhere, runs out of money. I mean, there's so much adventure in this. He spends far more time doing it than he planned. And then in the end, he decides to share those places and what he found with other riders. First through his book, University of Gravel Roads, and then talks that he did, and then through these incredible motorcycle tours. That guy is Rene Cormier. And Rene has twice been nominated to the Canadian Motorcycle Hall of Fame. And back in 2012, he was selected to join the Ted Simon Foundation's Jupiter Travel Committee of Advisors. Rene's company is called Renadian Adventures. Renadian Adventures. Rene and his team of full-time guides and backup crew now run motorcycle trips all over the world. Africa, Mongolia, South America, Scotland, New Zealand, Canada. These are upscale boutique accommodation adventures, not like what Rene did on his trip, <laughs> but they're small groups, under 10 bikes per group. His tours are largely selected from his own favorite places that Rene experienced on his trip around the world that feature big landscapes and not many people. So if you want a real motorcycle adventure, 
check out renadian.com. That's renadian.com. And when you do, of course, mention there that you heard him here on Adventure Rider Radio, renadian.com. This next story is from Clinton Smout, who is the chief instructor at Smart Adventures in Ontario, Canada. Clinton is also well known from our Rider Skills segments. If you're a regular listener to the show, you'll recognize his voice immediately. Now, some stories have a real humorous side that, you know, you get a laugh out of, but you can also learn some things from it. And in this story, Clinton learns about, well, possibly being a little overexcited to embrace another culture without enough planning to pull it off successfully. So think, Jim, uh, a new model of ATV has come out and most manufacturers will hold a dealer meeting annually and it showcases all the new product, you know, street, dirt, ATV that the company has created. And I was asked to attend one of these dealer meetings, which is quite common. If You've attended going, them before, in other words. you. Yeah, many times. Oh, I see. And the real rationale is not that Clinton's such a great guy. It's that he's a chief instructor. So for due diligence, if there's going to be riding at these events, the manufacturer thinks, you know what? Let's get one of those chief instructor people and they can kind of monitor and set up the test rides. And, you know, if anything was to go wrong then you know what? We are at arm's length. We had this chief instructor person right. there. They've, they've, they've covered their, their butts, so to, so to speak, in yeah. a way. But so this the, the event that you're describing, though, it's not inside some hotel somewhere. This, this is an outdoor thing where they've got a course set up and, and you've got yeah. um, ATVs to, to ride. And, and this ATV manufacturer is also a motorcycle manufacturer. Yes. Yeah, I didn't want to say their name, but let's say it's a Japanese manufacturer. Right. <laughs> and... Okay. It was at a big resort, very, very fancy, because you want to attract the dealers to come to the resort from across Canada or the U.S. when they're held there. Mm -hmm. They're all over the world. And there's seminars that showcase with PowerPoint and movies the new product. Mm -hmm. It's kind of a rah, 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 we're doing great. You should feel good about being a dealer. Right. This is a big event that the manufacturer puts on. There's a lot goes into this. It really is. It's huge money spent, including hiring a chief instructor. That's not huge money. but So I was at an off-road location, and we had a couple telephone poles to show and illustrate how this new ATV suspension was fantastic, and it could climb over things. And then buses would show up full of dealers, and they would put on a helmet some gardening gloves and some safety glasses. And we would take them out on trail rides that were designed to showcase the attributes of this new product. So when I was asked to go, I said, oh, that sounds like fun. How many staff can I bring? What's the budget? And they said, Clinton, all the staff are there. We just need you, buddy. So I show up early. There's all the ATVs. We had 60 of them. So 60. just imagine a, a field full of brand spanking new ATVs. We The day prior to dealers arriving, we test rode every one, make sure the fluids were all topped up, etc. We set up our training area. I knew this particular forest, very rocky, very rough, and it was very muddy. But 
I met the staff that were going to work for me. One was this crazy guy, Nate, who, I won't tell you his last name in case he listens. I'm sure he listens. But he's from the far east of Canada, Jim, uh, Newfoundland, where ATVs, there's two at every household just about. So he shows up and he's sitting on one of the brand new ATVs and he starts it up as if he's going to go for a ride. And I said, Nate, hang on, buddy. Where are you going? He says, oh, I'm just going to see, you know, how fast she goes, buddy. I said, well, you got to put a helmet on. He says, I've been riding ATVs my whole life. Never put a helmet on yet. I said, well, today's your lucky day because nobody's <laughs> riding without a helmet. So he begrudgingly slaps a helmet on, goes to leave, and I stop him. Nate, you got to do it up. He says, I don't know how. I said, no problem. I'll do it for you. He's never worn a helmet before. Wow. That's yeah. not all that uncommon for people who ride um, ATVs like in a util utility type fashion, you know, like around their yard, around their farm or whatever. Quite often, no one wears exactly. a helmet. Exactly. Yeah. If, if you see an ATV on a hunting or a gold mining show, there's not a helmet in sight, is there? Oh, bad. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, thank goodness I forced him to put one on and do it up. Because this location, um, the resort is so fancy, it has a paved airstrip on Ooh. the part of the property. So Buddy goes down the airstrip wide open. And I know the property. He's never seen it before. At the end of the pavement is a drop-off and a sand trap in case a landing plane goes a little too far. Or right. it could be an ATV trap. So we see the ATV going end over end oh. in the air because, you know, he left it way too late, wide open to put the brakes on. So we see his body Wing through the air, the ATV end over end. Oh, man. And another guy and I raced down there on ATVs. He's got two broken wrists, 911 for an ambulance. Now I'm down one staff member. <laughs> the other two guys were much more sensible, but they'd never taught. They were just working for the manufacturer and, you know, thought that would be fun. So we went over some basics and then the buses start arriving. So we get people dressed and we took them out, 50 of them at a time. I'm leading there's a middle person working for me and a sweep rider to kind of keep an eye on because the manufacturers, this is a holiday for them. The dealers. Dealers, yes. It's not their ATV. So they probably will drive them kind of with a rental car philosophy. <laughs> Let's see what this baby will do. So yeah. we, we have to kind of corral them as diplomatically as we can because these are sellable units. We can't smash them up. Mm -hmm. Well, despite the guy from Newfoundland, that was written off, by the way. <laughs> so we do three or four bus loads, and then we had radios, intercoms in our helmets. I hear the crazy Newfie screaming at me over the radio. It turns out he's all hyped up on Demerol, He's got two casts from his elbow to his fingertips. 
and he's back from the hospital. So they put uh, this guy, Nate, in the equipment tent, passing out helmets. And I'm thinking to myself, well, there's a great promotion to how safe our operation is. We got a stoned guy in two casts passing out the safety gear. Telling everybody they really work. Hey, you're going to have fun. They really go. <clears throat> so at mid-tour with Group C, Nate gets on the radio and he's screaming at me, Clayton, he, he still doesn't know my name, Clayton, you got to get back here. Mr. and I'll pretend his name was Akimi. Mr. Akimi himself wants to test ride this new fancy ATV. Okay, so who is Mr. Akimi? He's like a VP of this manufacturer in the world. He's never been to Canada before, but he's flown in specifically for the dealer meeting. From Japan? Yes, very high up individual in that company. Like there's only two above them. So what is the feeling there with this guy arriving? Is, is it, well, is everyone I on? think kind of that due diligence thing I mentioned, Jim, the executives from Canada said, you know what? If he wants to ride it, we want the chief instructor guy teaching him. <laughs> right. So they're screaming at me to race back because the limo is going to arrive any minute. So I called up the staff member that was in the middle to pass everybody and take over the lead. And I can ride an ATV pretty fast. I stood up and booked it back to the area where we start. But it took me a couple of minutes. So about every 30 seconds, guess who's screaming at me to hurry up, hurry up. The limo's here. But I'm not going to kill myself. So I get back there. I ride over the hill. And the scene was a big limo a bunch of people in suits and I leap off the ATV and I get at the end of the line because they said, get down there. They have to introduce you to Mr. Akimi. And what's your feeling as you're walking up? Do you get the feeling that like that this is being really treated like he's, you know, royalty? Absolutely. It was a receiving line, just like you've seen on TV with Queen Elizabeth. Oh, wow. So I'm at the end and I'm in full gear and I'm all muddy. But I'm looking down the line. They had a handler. Uh, I don't know where he was from, but he was introducing the people in suits to the vice president. And I noticed, yeah, I noticed every time he was introduced, he would bow very deeply and say, oh, very good to meet you, and then shake their hand. And I thought it was a little weird because I saw the movie there was a television series, Shogun, way back, I don't know, 30 years ago. Mm -hmm. When the emperor comes out, all the subjects get down on their knees. And they're not even reciprocating the bow. And I thought that was very odd. So when it got to me, they said, Akimi-san, this is Clinton. He is our chief instructor. He's going to show you the new ATV. So he said, oh, very glad to meet you, and deep bow. Well, I thought it would be appropriate to bow as well. Did I mention I still have my helmet on, Jim? Yes. There, there was a little timing issue. I had a, a helmet with a peak, and I clocked them right above the eyes 
with the peak of my helmet. So you bowed at the same time as he bowed, thinking you're doing this nice thing, and you crack him in the head. Knock him on the ground. Oh, man. He was a diminutive person, not very tall, maybe 5'5", five, five, and knock him on the ground. Well, the general sales manager of Canada, who we've since become friends, a guy named Don, he dove down to help lift Mr. Akimi, just as I did. Well, I hit Don in the ear. Oh, I head bonked two people. <laughs> so, what's everybody else doing around? Oh, what's the, my the God. look on, the, on their faces? Well, the crazy Newfie screaming into the radio Clinton's killed Akimi. We're all going to get fired. <laughs> it was mayhem. And Mr. Akimi jumped up very spryly and said, oh, No problem, no problem. And people are trying to brush off. He had a gorgeous suit on, trying to brush off his pants. And I'm absolutely mortified. <laughs> what did you say? Oh, I, I apologized many times. Oh, no problem. No problem. Where is ATV? So I, I said, well, sir, look at how muddy I am. It's, it's really wet out on the trail. Can I give you my spare riding gear? So I gave him some my motocross gear, but I'm not five foot five. So when he came out of the tent, it was a little odd looking because the pants went up to his armpits almost, but he was ready to go. So we showed him the basics in this kind of staging area, you know, over the telephone poles and he could ride really well. I'm sure it wasn't his first time. Right. We went out, everything stopped. There was no dealers riding. Uh, we went out for about 15 minutes on a short trail ride and came back and we parked. He took his gear off and came and shook my hand. And I said, again, Mr. Akimi, I am so sorry. He said, no problem. You have no problem with you. And then he turned to walk away and he turned back. And I'll never forget it. My son still mocked me about this, but in an incredibly deep voice, he said, Clinton son, you very good rider. And that's how it was left. <laughs> and so you've cracked him in the head. You took him for a ride. By the sounds of it, it sounds like you, you want him over again. Did you feel like it was done at that point? Well, I thought I'd salvaged it, despite the fact that he still had a red line just above his <laughs> eyes when he left. Um, but I didn't realize till a few years later, you know what? I've never had a call since that incident from that manufacturer. <laughs> and it actually took 16 years before that company called me again to help them at a dealer, a kind of a, it was more of a media day to test ride a new model they brought out. 16 years? 16 years. Because, because they called you regularly up until this point. Like you were regularly on their schedule yeah, up until that point. So Absolutely. It's, it's unmistakable. You, oh, yeah. You cracked yeah. the big guy in the head and they yeah, dumped I shot, you. <laughs> I shot myself in the foot that one. And it was hilarious. I'd go to a motorcycle show or a national motocross track because we would go to do training for kids at the motocross nationals across Canada. Mm -hmm. And... They wouldn't remember my name, but they would just scream out, hey, you're the guy that knocked Akimi over, you know, years <laughs> later. 
So I guess as long as they remember who you are. Yeah, I mean, you remember for something, right? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So dare I ask this obviously stupid question, but what did you learn from that? And and did you change anything? (laughs) I did learn and I looked up and researched etiquette when meeting different nationalities. I think that's very important if you're in business. Mm. If you're making a deal with a Japanese executive, you do not bow when you meet them. (laughs) I also learned if they proffer their business card, you don't grab it and stick it in your shirt pocket. I did that once. Um, You take it with reverence and put it on the desk in front of you, and then you offer them your card. So there's some real etiquette that I was ignorant of that yeah. I now know. So now if you go to something like this and, you, and you're meeting someone like that, maybe, you, and you don't understand the etiquette, you're going to look it up. Yeah, absolutely. For different nationalities. Right. I think different nationalities have a different space. Um, like if I'd met you or Elizabeth, I might even give you a hug. So good to see you guys, something like yeah. that. And a lot of people don't like hugs. <laughs> I'm kind of a huggy guy, but so I, I've had to uh, learn and curb my enthusiasm sometimes. So, are you just more cautious in general, though, yes. of how you approach? Yeah, definitely yeah. more cautious. <laughs> <laughs> so, what happened is they had to wait long enough for everyone to either retire or die that was involved. With I think that. that was it. They're all gone. The <laughs> people that remember that are all gone. Sixteen years is a long time to suffer for a mistake. Yes. I just realized we just recounted it. I may not get any more work (laughs) or people meeting me will be very wary. was Clinton Smout from Smart Adventures in Ontario, Canada. His website is smartadventures.ca. And of course, as I said, if you're a regular listener to the show, you'll recognize him from our Rider Skills program. Now we're going to stop for just a few minutes while I tell you about something. But after that, we have another story about the dangers of blindly trusting someone you met while traveling on the road. Or perhaps it's about being able to blindly trust someone that you met while traveling. You be the judge. Stay with us. This little device will change your ride. And after you use it, you're going to wonder why you didn't try it sooner. That's how I felt about it. It's the Atlas Throttle Lock. And it holds your throttle position when you're cruising those long stretches of road. It's what every serious rider needs. The Atlas Throttle Lock was invented by Heidi and David Winters from an experience they had when they were doing their round-the-world trip on their KTM. And what they made is such an incredible product for us riders. It's super thin finely crafted piece of metal that clamps onto your handlebar in just a few minutes. You can swap it easily from one bike to another as well, which I really like. But aside from the the intricate details of this thing and the fine design, and the beautiful looks, it's really the way it works that I think makes it the rider's companion. 
it's got two buttons on it, one for engage, the other for disengage. And you simply just press the button with your thumb to engage it. It holds your throttle position. You can add more throttle, take throttle away. It just holds the new position. You simply twist. And it's the tactile feel of those buttons that tells you exactly what you're doing. I mean, it is so well designed, so well balanced. There's no need to glimpse down. It's just incredibly well made. The other button is for disengage. It's as simple as that. The Atlas Throttle Lock is designed to fit most every bike. I absolutely love mine. AtlasThrottleLock.com. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. AtlasThrottleLock.com. Every rider should understand that being seen on the road is paramount. Far too many drivers have said, I just didn't see the bike. So wearing bright colors can help, of course. Your lane position can help. But one way they can't ignore us is through lighting. Day or night, auxiliary lighting is key to gaining a driver's attention. But of course, all lighting is not created equally. You need to buy quality lighting. Cyclops Adventure Sports makes high-quality lighting for us motorcyclists because they are riders just like us. They know what it's like to be on the road, and they know what we need on the road. Cyclops is a family-owned business and operated. It's a family of riders. They make a ton of stuff. LED headlight replacements, for instance, that will replace your, your incandescent headlight with an LED. Lower power consumption, so you can power some other accessories. But more importantly, LED gives you a much brighter headlight, much punchier light. And it's properly focused, not like one of those cheap LED lights that spray light everywhere and have drivers flashing their headlights at you. That only gets you in trouble. You buy a quality light that Cyclops Adventure Sports has, and you know that it's focused properly. That's key. They also have accessory managers for CAN bus systems, lighting connections for CAN bus systems, just so much more. CyclopsAdventureSports.com is the website. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. CyclopsAdventureSports.com. This story is about something that happened while on a motorcycle travel adventure. And although the participants are very much involved and connected to motorcycling, This story seems to have happened because of the motorcycle itself. This is Spencer and Kathy Conway. So, Spencer, you have Kathy with you to tell this story. Hello, Kathy. Hi, Jim. Okay, so just jump in here as as needed with the story. When does this take place and and what are we talking about? Well, we were in Peru in a place called Cayamarca, which is quite elevated. There's just loads and loads of mountains surrounding you. And we went to a very nice place to stay for the evening, a motor camp that's run by a friend of ours called David Groves. Um, There was a man staying there (laughs) and running the place. His name was Franco. Very good looking, very charming young man, which Spencer calls a gigolo. (laughs) But he was also (laughs) actually the Peruvian cycling champ and a very, very good mechanic. Well, his wife had opened up a Chinese restaurant in Cayamarca and we were invited to go out there for the opening and he insisted that he would drive us to this place. And as we were um, reversing out of the driveway, he went off a cliff. (laughs) He just kept going and we were... So hang on, you, you guys are on a motorcycle adventure, clearly, yes. but you've met up with this person, you, you befriended them, they're going to take you out for dinner, so you pile into their vehicle, yes. which I'm assuming this is a mountainous area. Very, yes, in Cayamarca. <laughs> what are the roads like there, like in the, in the immediate area? Oh, 
they are extremely steep, um, very many, many, many curves, sharp curves, um, very, very long drops. It's it's just one of those places. You, you literally hanging onto the side of mountains going around there. And are the houses those those hang off the mountain style houses? Yes, exactly. Yes. So the driveway we were going down was so incredibly steep and I don't know if his brakes just didn't work or whatever, but he just cut straight across the road and took us off the side of the mountain. So when do you know when he's backing up that it's going wrong? When he didn't slow down at the bottom. <laughs> <laughs> and do you say anything? Like, or he, like what, think- do you, what, what goes through your mind and what do you say or do? Well, it was just complete shock. And then also sort of laughter at, at the, you know, ridiculous situation. We just couldn't believe he did that. He was so calm about the whole thing. And his daughter was sitting next to him. She was about 15 years old and she was on her mobile phone with her friends. She didn't even blink an eyelid. She just stayed <laughs> in the car. So what, where did the car stop? Like, so you're going down and you, you go off the edge of the cliff. Like what happens? How far down? Well, um, we went a few meters down the cliff, but we hit a rock. So we were balancing like a seesaw on this rock um, that was in the center of the car underneath us. Like a movie. Yeah. It's like a movie. You yes, know, it's, it was. it's precariously perched. <laughs> and Spence and I were stuck at the back as one of those vans and we couldn't get the door open. And Franco just jumped out the car and, you know, started looking at the thing and pushing the car while it was rocking. And we were just stuck in the back of this. <laughs> and and you, you're not going to say, like, I mean, you're off the side of this mountain and he's pushing the vehicle and you're stuck inside. Are you not going to say anything like, hey, <laughs> let us out of here? Or? Well, yes, of course. You know, Franco, can you let us out, please? You know, <laughs> <laughs> We had to jump out the car. You know, there was a little way down from the thing and... We had to hold the back of the car up and Franco went and and grabbed some neighbors who came around and they started building a road underneath, underneath the car. So they're filling up underneath the wheels Hmm. to try and build a road to drive this thing out. And and does anyone express how precarious the situation is or how dangerous it was or, oh, you're lucky or? No, it was completely normal to them. (laughs) But he did afterwards say to us, you know, I'm, I'm not really used to driving a car. I only drive a, uh, ride a motorbike, so. Let me interject. He actually, he actually said, I said, what are you doing, Franco? Why did you just reverse, go across the main road and go across, off a cliff? Um, and he went, I don't know how to drive a car. he's he's, he's a top motorcyclist he's a top mechanic he's a cycling champion but he failed to to tell us that he was going to take us out for dinner but he didn't know how to drive and it was one of those vw combis did that anger you did did you get upset with that or or To, to be honest once over the initial shot because i mean this thing it is like you exactly said jim it's a film it's like seesawing back and forth and if it had gone off that would have been it we'd have all been dead but franco's sitting in the front all good looking and laughing and his daughter's sitting next to him on her mobile phone saying i don't think i'm gonna make it to the restaurant we're gonna die with dad <laughs> so- <laughs> so there's something about the way they handled the situation that seemed to make it less dangerous. Oh, absolutely. They were so calm and, and it was just, you know, the most normal thing. I think, you know, after the initial shock, like Spencer said, we were just laughing. You know, you can't help it. Wow. Is that a thing? I mean, like, think about it. If, if the way you respond to something 
affects the level of danger. I mean, that that's how it opens up a whole new world. That is such a good comment, Jim. And it was something that I was going to bring up at some point. The way that you approach a difficult situation totally affects the outcome and it also affects your memory of it. If you stay positive and you know you, you think of the, the best way to get out of it and you solve the situation, um, you actually feel wonderful afterwards. I mean, literally what Kathy said is true. We built, and she's putting herself down because she also helped. We rebuilt that road. We got logs, we got um, trees, we got mud, we had, um, we had four spades, we had rocks, and we rebuilt the back of that road really until we could get the wheels back on there. But the thing is, they were, they were right behind it. I mean, right behind it, these guys working away. And I kept saying, if it goes, you're gone too. But they were just laughing and smiling. But the ridiculous thing is, Jim, when we finally got it off, the, got the, the, the truck back on, onto the main road, Franco said, right, well, let's get to the Chinese restaurant. And then we had to, <laughs> then we had to put up with them driving onto pavements, nearly into, into the side of buildings, nearly running over the the multitude of women that he'd probably slept with, you know, so uh, it was- <laughs> Hang on, Spencer and Kathy. The, I, I have to say that you just sat in a car with a guy who went off a cliff backwards, tells you he can't drive the vehicle. And what do you do after you get rescued and everything turns out fine? You climb back in the car with them. Well, to be quite honest, you know, the way we think of, of things, it's, it's not what could have happened because that's not really relevant to the story. It's what did happen and nothing actually happened to us. So we were fine. <laughs> it was just, well, I guess that's, yeah. it was just so surreal, the whole situation that you can't help but laugh at the, 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 you know, the, the ridiculousness of the whole thing. But you can drive a car, Kathy, correct? Yes, I can. Yes. Well, why didn't you, why didn't you just say I'll drive? Well, we, we were okay then. We were on the road. There were no more mountains to go down. <laughs> That's well, Kathy's attitude for you. You know, back to what we were saying there about how you handled, obviously, like, cause you told a story about being attacked in, in Kenya, Spencer, and, and being shot at. Obviously you can't, you know, take a, 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 um, a humor side to that. That's a, a different situation. But I was going to say the other thing that might happen with that as well is by changing the way you respond to something like that. So you respond yes. in a more lighthearted fashion. It probably gives you much more latitude in your thinking to be able to solve the problem as well. You, you've just said what Kathy's actually taught me, you know, Jim. Uh, she's incredible in very, very difficult situations. And she does see the funny side of it. I mean, for example, when, when uh, he jumped, Franco jumped back in and said, let's go. I was like, ooh, I don't know about this. And Kathy was like, hey, we've got a Chinese restaurant to go to. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, yeah, you know, it's your attitude. Some, some people might just absolutely freak out and go, oh, no, that was close to death experience. I'm going home. I can't deal with this. I'm out. Right. So I think that's the difference between people who rationalize things um, and people who panic. So it, it is, it's, it's a frame of mind. And uh, really, I got hats off to Kathy. I mean, in all the difficult situations we've been in, Kathy was a stalwart. I mean, the last thing you want is people jumping around screaming, going, this is the end of it. This is the end yeah. of it. Like I do. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll scream it, later. Sorry. <laughs> the, uh, after this, is, is there anything that you would, you would peg to learning from that situation in particular? 
yeah, don't go in a combi with a gigolo. <laughs> no, I mean, I mean, this situation is so much the opposite of of, of the situations you're normally in. This was just a one-off. Um, I mean, he was being wonderful. I mean, he, actually, his him and his wife were the first people to serve up guinea pig for Kathy and I. It's very interesting looking. It's just a whole guinea pig with his legs and teeth and everything stuffed on a plate and handed to you. Hmm. Yeah, it looks like it's been run over by a car and put on a plate. Right. What's it yeah, taste not, like? Um, d- d- not like chicken, because that's, oh, what, every, that's, nice that's what everyone <laughs> says about every exotic meat or, you know, they exactly, taste yeah. like chicken. It's not true. Um, crocodile doesn't taste like chicken. Guinea pig doesn't taste like chicken. Impala doesn't taste like chicken. They've all got their own taste. Well, that's but, good to know. But the, the point is that this, this, I mean, this guy, Franco, we were staying at David Groves and Franco's house. They were so wonderful to us. They helped us with the bike. And, you know, um, going off the cliff, yes, we could have got angry. We could have fallen out with him when he said, oh, no, I don't know how to drive a car. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, why? What is the point? Uh, they were very nice people. He made a silly mistake. He was excited about taking us to his wife's new restaurant. And uh, we're friends to this very day. And, in fact, uh, in my book, I've got these stories. And, obviously, you, I cleared it with Franco. And he was like, of course you can write about that. Um, I mean, he's a very traditional chap. He's got three wives, um, you know, lots of, uh, lots of children. And he doesn't walk past a single woman in the street without chatting them up. He's, he's hilarious. He's a wonderful character. And instead of falling out, Kathy and I have got a friend for life, if you know what I mean, because yeah. of the way we approach the situation. And I'm so glad you said that about, about mentality and attitude because Kathy's taught me a lot in how to stay calm and, and not freak out about things. Kathy, can I just ask you one last question about this? Yes. After this happens, what was the food like at the restaurant? Absolutely wonderful. Uh, <laughs> Which so, is a strange thing, yeah. I didn't have an appetite. <laughs> you didn't? <laughs> I can't understand why. <laughs> no, it was a great restaurant, actually. <laughs> the food was great, and we didn't tell his wife that he went off the cliff. So he yeah, was happy well, and she was happy. Yeah, it was nearly the last supper. Yeah, right. Just before I finish, um, what's the name of the book that you have this story in, Spencer? It's called The Zimbabwean Psychiatrist's Hat. Right, very good. Kathy, Spencer, thank you so much. Thank you too. Thanks, Jim. No, thanks, Jim. Spencer and Kathy Conway, both on the road, as they virtually always are filming and exploring by motorcycle. A quick word, and then we're going to be back with our last story for today, which is about how enthusiasm can get you in trouble, and in this case, almost cost him his life. Stay with us. Standing on your foot pegs gives you much more control over your motorcycle. I'm sure you already know that. But the question is, what are you standing on? Those stock pegs can easily be replaced with a larger, wider IMS Products foot peg. Why would you do that? 
Well, because a properly designed larger foot peg will give you more leverage for control and a better connection between your boot and the peg. And those two things will change what you can do with the skills that you already have. And then then they will set you up to build new skills that you can do even more than what you're already doing. I did it. The, the, the change was incredible. I mean, seriously, ride changing. So much so that if I was to buy a new bike right now, one of the first changes I would make would be swapping out those stock pegs for IMS Products foot pegs. IMS Products makes a full line of properly designed adventure motorcycle foot pegs designed to suit your riding style. All are made in the USA, all using 17.4 cast certified stainless steel, all have gone through a certified heat treating process, and all come with a lifetime warranty. It's no wonder IMS products are used on so many top off-road racing bikes in the circuit. IMSproducts.com is the website. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. IMSproducts.com. IMSproducts.com. And now for our last story on this premiere episode of Deep Trouble. This one involves a serious incident that could very well have cost a young Clinton smout his life. And despite the seriousness or the consequences that could have been in this story, Clinton has a way of telling it that is entertaining yet still informative. I guess it's the teacher in him coming out once again for us. I wonder, does it ever go away? This is when Clinton Smout first discovers that you go where you look. So you had another one. I know you've had many, Clinton, but another one that, <laughs> that we, we wanted to talk about here, which was scary. And it was a long time ago. Can you set this up? Um, where was this and yeah. what were you doing? Um, my very first motorcycle, I I think I've related to you. I sold salamanders to kids at school in grade two and three until I got shut down. But no, I, mean, I, six, I don't think I, I heard this before. You sold salamanders to, to yeah, raise money for your I, bike? The Honda 50 that came out in the late 60s, I had a neighbor that got one and he wouldn't let me drive it, but he took me for a ride and I was hooked. That's what I wanted to do. It was my entire focus, you know, next to eating, I had to make money to get my own motorcycle. So my father encouraged it. He said, yeah, buy two or three, but, you know, get a job. (laughs) And we lived in a very rural farm type area, although we didn't have a farm. So there wasn't enough people for a paper route. So that was always in the back of my mind. How do I make some money? So at show and tell in grade two, I took in two salamanders. And as an aside, I should relate to you, Jim, My mom saved all my report cards for my siblings and myself. My grade two teacher said, Clinton sometimes has to be reminded that other children would like to tell stories. (laughs) (laughs) But at show and tell, I took in two salamanders that I'd caught underneath a rotten log out in the bush. And I had them as little pets. And the kids went nuts. I'll give you 50 cents for that. That was a lot of money in grade two. So I had the light bulb idea. I'll catch lots more of these salamanders and sell them. So I had a bucket with holes in it on the top. And I would take, you know, dozens of them in, on the school bus. And I'd sell them before school and at recess. <laughs> 
And it worked great for two seasons, but kind of the end of grade three, the principal, we only had four rooms in our school. So he was one of the teachers, but grade eight, he called me into his office. Are you the dumb kid selling those little lizards? And I said, no, they're salamanders. And uh, you can imagine he didn't take that calmly. (laughs) He kind of erupted. I don't care what they're called. Stop selling them. Because mothers were phoning the school complaining because they're finding them, you know, under kids' pillows, in the pockets. (laughs) So I got shut down. I had no idea your first business was was salamander salesman. It was. That's going to stick with me from now on. (laughs) I was eight. So I made $65.00. Two years of that was birthday money from my grandmother, $5. But, you know, I made a lot of money selling exotic pets. And I found a bike at a snowmobile manufacturing plant in my little hometown called Northway. And long gone now, but I used to get off the bus at 3.30 and I would sweep the floors and I was the go-to guy. They'd sell Clinton. I need a couple of these parts and I'd run to the storeroom and bring it to the guys on the assembly line. So the owner of this business liked me. And when some guy brought his kid's bike in to have a flat tire fixed, um, they never picked it up. It sat there for over a year and I would dust it and sit on it. (laughs) I couldn't touch the ground. So the owner of the shop, his name was Lou. He phoned this pretty rich fella and said, you know, what are you doing with this bike? Do you want to sell it? And he goes, yeah, uh, I'll take $150. So Lou said, well, you owe me for fixing it and storage. So I'm giving you $75. So my dad lent me $10 and I cashed in my piggy bank of $65. And that was my first bike. Salamander powered. Yeah. So I couldn't touch the ground, nowhere near it. But my dad showed me, you know, he rode in England post-war. So he showed me the clutch, the gears, blah, blah, blah. And he had railway ties lining the sides of our long gravel driveway. So if I could bring it to a stop and get my foot down on a railway tie, I didn't crash. Otherwise, I crashed a lot. So what size bike is this? It was a Kawasaki 85, 1969. And so that that was my first bike. Kickstart only, of course. Mm -hmm. But I rode it winter and summer for probably four or five years till I could afford the next size bike. But uh, I got pretty good at riding because of no traction in the summer. And I rode it as long as I had gasoline no, I rode no it traction in the summer. In the summer? Or, sorry, in the winter because of the snow. Right. I rode it around our neighborhood in on like snow-covered roads, gravel roads. So mm-hmm. it was so much fun. But we had one trail where you had to cross a creek to get to this trail. And a big tree had fallen down and rotted over the years. So it was kind of like a hollow log that... I crossed dozens and dozens of times. And then it rained really heavily for about three days. And I couldn't ride my bike. It was torrential rain. 
So when the sun came out, I came out and I was ripping around on this bike, so happy to be riding again. And I thought, oh, I'm going to go back on that trail that leads to the forest. But as I went to cross the log that I'd been across many, many times, I looked down amazed at how high the creek water was. It was probably about eight feet across. Mm. Now, it would be more uh, more dramatic if I called it a raging river, Jim. It was really a creek. <laughs> it may have been, I don't know, a couple feet deep normally. Mm-hmm. But now with a with a swell of the rainwater, it was way deeper. So I stupidly looked down as I went to cross the log and I went off the side. The front wheel dropped off. I went over first and then my bike came after me and landed on me. So the water was deep enough that when I was, you know, trapped under the bike, I barely had my helmet out of the water. Oh, and it was wow. so, so you're laying face up in the creek. The bike is on top of you. Yeah. And it was pretty tense because it was freezing cold water. And it was, the current was strong enough that it was kind of lapping over the chin of my helmet. I didn't have a visor on this old full face helmet I had. And I was getting water up my nose and in my mouth, so it was really scary. But I didn't have enough strength to throw the bike up off of me. It had me trapped, plus the current holding it. So I just kind of dragged my... uh, The pipe was also burning my leg, but the cold water really helped. I did have a big welt on my leg when I did get out. But the only way I could get out was to push up with my arms and try to drag my leg one at a time out from under the foot pegs and the pipe. And it must have, I don't know how long it took me, maybe 10 minutes, but that was a long 10 minutes wondering, is is this how I'm going to die? You know, they're going to find me and my mom's going to say, I told you, you shouldn't be riding alone. (laughs) But I got out, but I couldn't lift the bike out. I just kind of stood it up against the bank, and my buddy and I dragged it up the hill after I got changed and warmed up. Wow. Now, I want to ask you what you learned from that. And I know you've got all these years of experience, and I know you know exactly what you should be doing now. (laughs) But, But back then... Did that change? Do you remember? Did that change the way you rode after that? Did, did, that, did you change did. anything? I still went across that log for years until it finally broke. And a bunch of us got some scrap wood from our dads and we built a wider two by four kind of plank bridge. Mm-hmm. And I knew right away that if I hadn't looked down to see, you know, I marveled at how high the water was. I went where I looked and that's coaching tip that we tell people when we're training for ruts or anything on two wheels, really, you got to keep your eyes up, look at your destination, not (laughs) where you don't want to go. Yeah. And that popped into my mind as soon as you said it, because I know you you made a point to say that that's what, what happened is you look down, you recognize, I guess at the time, but at the time, did you recognize it? Did, did you, yeah. did you come out of that and say, I never should have looked down? Exactly. Cause my yeah. buddy said, you know, how much of an idiot are you? We go across this Creek every day to the trail 
And I said, I know, I think it's because I looked at the water because mm. it was so much higher and fast current. Right. So but, you recognize it at that time and then, and then from then on you thought, I gotta, I, I'm not yeah, looking down look next down. time. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so looking back, what, what were the other things that should have set off alarm bells for you? Well, if you're going to ride where it's a little riskier and you know it, maybe it would be smarter to go with a friend. Because mm. uh, that would have, you know, the whoever would have jumped off their bike, I would have let them go first. Because they, <laughs> they always had faster, bigger bikes than me. I always had the junky ones. But uh, maybe if they'd gone in, I wouldn't have. I would have jumped in the water and helped them. But there was nobody there to help me. Right. But, but the thing is, you were riding a, pl- a spot where, I mean, because you could argue that, well, I, I ride this all the time. But what yes. I was thinking was, was what about the weather? You just said you had three days of rain. Yes. The creek is swollen. Those things should set off alarm bells for you. Exactly. It didn't at the time. The euphoria of wanting to be, get rid of the withdrawal of not riding. I am a motorcycle freak. I have been since I was seven. And so to not ride, like the winter is very tough for me. I still stud up bikes. We haven't in a few years, but I really want to this year just to get out again. Because mm-hmm. a snowmobile, it's fun, but it's not a motorcycle. Right. So now after, you know, weather will really change areas you're riding in, especially if it isn't pavement. Hills will be rutted. Debris will be washed into corners. There's sand washed onto paved corners sometimes, all by heavy rain and water flow erosion. Mm-hmm. Sticks on the road if you're on the road, gravel across yeah. the asphalt, all those things. So that's something that obviously you know, especially being an instructor nowadays. Yeah. And it's one of those first things that happens when when you come out and you you know there's been a rain. You're thinking things have changed. Yes. So now I still ride alone a lot. Uh, it's not because I don't have any friends, Jim. I do so. But I will take the trails that I'm going to use that day for a, a adventure bike school. Most of them are on my way to work. So if I have time in the morning, I'll check those out, make sure there's no trees down. You know, how deep is the mud after that rain? Mm-hmm. So because I'm riding alone, I'm on a little extra high alert of carefulness and drop my speed down that I might not ride that slow if a buddy or another instructor was with me. I may rip it up a little bit. Right. So those are the things that uh, getting out of scrapes, I have been lucky enough to survive them all. Uh, Not always without a broken limb and a hospital visit, but I have learned from them. Clinton, great story. Thank you very much. Our pleasure. Hey, Clinton, if there's one thing I could just ask of you before I let you go here, is there any chance you can get me a salamander for next week? Absolutely. I I could catch one in five minutes. I know where they are. Thank you. Although I may have depleted the breeding stock somewhat. Oh, don't tell me you're still selling those salamanders. (laughs) No, no. There's probably not a salamander within 100 kilometers of you. (laughs) No, they've recovered. (laughs) <laughs> that 
That was Clinton Smout. And if you're a regular listener, as I mentioned, you're going to know him from our, from our Rider Skills program. Clinton is the chief instructor at Smart Adventures. His website is smartadventures.ca, where I'm sure you're going to find none of the stories that he tells us on this show. Well, that concludes our premiere episode of Deep Trouble. We really hope you enjoyed it. There's more in the works, so stay tuned. Now, if you think you have a Deep Trouble story that would fit here on Adventure Rider Radio, drop by our website, fill out the pitch form at adventureriderradio.com forward slash submissions. You'll find that link, of course, just by exploring our website or a way to contact us. And we'd love to see your submission. And who knows, it could be your story on here next. We, as always, have links and photos of, about what we talked about here in the show notes, all at our website, adventureriderradio.com. Hey, I just want to remind you that this episode has been brought to you by Green Chili Adventure Gear, greenchiliadv.com, Motobreeze Chain Oiler at motobreeze.com, and Best Rest Products at cyclepump.com. And we'd really appreciate it if anytime you're dealing with these companies, anytime, email or otherwise, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Special thanks to our producer Elizabeth Martin and you of course thank you very much for listening and being part of the show and as I mentioned if you think you've got a story that would fit our Deep Trouble segments send us a pitch we'd just love to get it from you and we'd love to hear what sort of misadventure you've had and what you've learned from it. Well, now it's time to get out there and ride your bike. But before I send you off to ride your bike, let me just say that we, in case you don't know, we have another show called Adventure Rider Radio Raw. It's very popular as well. It comes out once a month. It comes out the 21st of every month. And we just released, I think it was last week, the latest episode of Raw. It's a little bit different than Adventure Rider Radio. Roundtable talks. We talk about motorcycle travel. It is good fun. And there's a lot of good information because the people on the panel there are very experienced travelers. So you can find that anywhere you find podcasts, but you can find all the stuff that we talk about at our website, adventureriderradio.com. Go there. You can see the people that are on the, on Raw and you can find out how to download it and you can listen to it right from the website as well. Anyway, get out there and ride your bike if you can. My name is Jim Martin. Thank you so much for listening and I will talk to you next week. Well, I'm Ted Simon, and here I am on Adventure Rider Radio again, uh, and extremely happy to be here with Jim Martin. (laughs) 